Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, it's uh, just a delight to have you with us today. I um, would like to say, before we get too far into anything, um, that we have a podcast. Uh, Aaron and I do every week, uh, and this is a place where we get to retcon everything that I said on Sunday morning. If I said something wrong, we get to correct it. If there's something I wish I had said or hadn't said, we get to talk about that uh, in amongst answering all these other sorts of questions. And so it's on at 11 o'clock, you're probably working, but I've heard the best way to watch it is not live, but afterwards. And so we'd love to invite you into that this week as we wrestle with this Pentecost series. I'd also like to make a note on the weather because this is the weather in England right now and this is the weather here. (laughs) And if something's true, it's true all the time. So what I don't want to hear from anyone ever again is how it rains all the time in England and it's always gorgeous here because clearly data point wise, that's what we've got. So, so I come from the land of sun, and it's a pleasure to be here with you in the land of rain uh, in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> anyway, that was just a little fun thing. Well, we're in the series uh, that we've called Pentecost. Help is here. Pentecost is this moment in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, after Jesus has died and has been risen. Uh, there's this moment where the Spirit comes. He, he turns over the church to his earliest followers. It's a day that could easily be called the birth of the church. It's this day where it's no longer just God for us, but God in us and then through us, and that's what we celebrate today. And yet, in the midst of that, there's a tension that I would suggest is present, certainly in the American church. The writer Phyllis Tickle says this, we live in an era where our fellow citizens tend to be more spiritual than religious. Last week, we talked about an openness to the spiritual world, a belief that it could be accessed and even transformed or changed. And yet, despite that surrounding emphasis, we, the church, are not quite sure what the Spirit is. Perhaps you come from a church tradition that you would say it felt like to a degree it was Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It was like that was the third part of the Trinity and you weren't sure how to talk about Spirit at all. And yet, this also is true. This is John Stott. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. What I loved about baptisms last week was, one, I got to baptize a couple of my own children. That was a joy for me. But, but, but as good as baptism of children and students is, there's something beautiful about adult life change. When you see that God has gotten a hold of somebody's life uh, after they've got beyond those early years, that's a compelling thing that you see in growing communities. And so that only is the work of the Spirit. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As the body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. 
Church without the Spirit is dead. These are the kind of things that we're trying to wrestle with over this next three weeks. Last year or the year before, we walked through the book of Acts and we came across this mantra that I would remind you of. The Spirit inside you, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit lives with inside you, is greater than Jesus beside you. I don't know about you, but that at times is hard to believe. It's hard for me to believe that it wouldn't be better if Jesus was just there. Jesus who never fails to do whatever I need him to do in the moments of crisis. Jesus to have a conversation with in the moments where I'm stressed out. Jesus to tell me everything is going to be okay. And yet this, is, this seems to be the insistence of the book of Acts and of Jesus himself. In John chapter 16, he says to his followers, it is better that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the spirit won't come. This is the preferred option. Perhaps it's simply about space. I sometimes complain about how busy my calendar can feel. There's appointments that book up, there's meetings that have to happen. Can you imagine Jesus' calendar if he was here just with us alone? You'd all want to see him every single day. Like we'd all be booking space in his calendar and, and yet living as just one human being. How, how does that work? And, the, and then there's millions of Jesus followers everywhere. What, what it seems to be is that each one of us can have this interaction with this spirit who is a gift to the church. This seems to be the purpose of Pentecost. This is what we're wrestling with. How do we develop that relationship, grow that relationship, thrive in that relationship? So we're going to try and get there over the next couple of weeks. Before we go any further, I'd like to ask you a question that might seem disconnected, but hopefully it will all come back together in the end. But before we go and look at that, I will say this. This is a sermon that occasionally they come along where I'm like, this just feels like it's hit me personally this week, and that's a risk. Uh, they all hit me personally in different ways. There's always an application for me, but sometimes there's one that comes along and I'm like, oh, I still don't know what I'm doing with this and how I respond to this. So uh, there'll be some messiness there, which is good. It's going to be on stage in front of you all and I'm okay with that. What does comfortable mean to you? What does comfortable mean? Just for a moment, process, use your imagination, just think. When are you at your most comfortable? Maybe it's an environment. Maybe it's like a particular room in the house. Maybe even a particular chair. It's like, this is my spot. I'm comfortable and happy in this moment. Maybe if you're a parent, it's that feeling when all of your kids are back in the house. Maybe like one o'clock in the morning, the final child rolls in and you're like, okay, now I can breathe because everybody's here. Maybe if you're a grandparent, it's when the grandparents come when the grandkids come to visit. Maybe you're a grandparent and it's when the grandkids leave. Like it's like, <laughs> it was great, but now they're off back where they belong. Could be anything, any environment. Maybe it's the first tee of a golf course. Maybe it's the 18th green when you throw your clubs in the lake because it was just that bad around. It could be almost anything, but think about the, that place where you just feel, yes, this is comfortable. This is good. Here I relax. Here I'm at peace. Here it feels safe. And I just want you to hold that and we'll come back to it. I love some of these weird spaces that animals find themselves to be at comfort. Like, yes, just hanging out. This one, like, I found something <laughs> that's shaped like me. <laughs> Who created this thing? It's like personal. It's mine. Just 
Any water will do. If you love water, any water's fine. And then just, they're, 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 they're in their space, they're comfortable. Hold that sense of what that is for you, and we'll come back to it. Over the next couple of weeks, we're wrestling with this chapter in a book called John. John is one of the biographies of Jesus' life. If you're unfamiliar with that, that's fine. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. There's common elements to them. John has some distinctives. This passage we're looking at is one of those distinctives. The things that Jesus says in John 14 through 17, he doesn't say anywhere else. Doesn't mean he didn't say them. Just means that John records different things in this moment. It's deeply personal. It's just for his first followers. But then beautifully, if you read John 14 through 17, there's this moment in chapter 17 where Jesus prays for you. He prays for you and for me that we might find this unity together. So it's really this beautiful chunk of scripture, but it doesn't start in the best way. It actually starts with bad news in John 13 verse 33. Jesus says this, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. For those of you who traveled last week, I'm going to really quickly try and walk us through the first parts to make sure we're all up to speed. His message seems to be this. I am leaving. You can't come with me. You will fail. It's difficult hearing in John chapter 13. It's that that idea of what it is left to be left behind. I had a group of friends that I used to spend time with in my early 20s, and I was always uncomfortable spending too much time with them because they were a pranky group of people. Occasionally, I would go surfing with them, and and they would go all the time, but but the things that happened there always horrified me just a little bit. They loved to play these tricks on each other, and there was one time one of the guys couldn't afford to go on a trip. And so the others got together and said, well, we love you. We're going to pay for you to come with us. But to to make the deal fair, you have to drive us to the airport uh, and you have to pay for the parking. And this friend said, that's absolutely fine. I've got that covered. And so they got in the car and they drove over to the airport. And then just before they got to the airport, they turned around to him and said, oh, it was all just a prank. You're actually not coming on the trip with us. You're staying here. Some of you are horrified. You're good people. Some of you realize it's kind of funny, a little bit, I don't know. But, but there's that idea of being left behind that actually is horrific to us. I'm not saying Jesus was playing a prank, but I am saying the horror for these first disciples must have been there in that gasp that you just gave. It's like, why, Jesus? Why would you leave? And why would you leave us with this kind of message? I'm leaving. You can't come with me. You will fail. And John 14, fortunately, gives the good news for each of those, I am coming back. You will be with me. I will send help. In the meantime, I will send help. I will send someone to be with you. As I say, this is, this is different language. Some people have even asked, is this even Jesus speaking? And yet, there's enough that's similar to the other text that makes us say, this seems like exactly the sort of thing Jesus might say. Jesus gives bad news, and then he gives good news. In John chapter 13, it's bad news. In John chapter 14, it's good news. So let's read through that together. Do not let your hearts be troubled. What a great segue from all the things he's told them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the the way to the place where I am going. And one of the disciples is convinced he doesn't know the way to the place that he is going. Thomas replies, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus replies with these life-changing words, which may well be the, the thing that inspired many of you in the room to follow Jesus for yourself for the first time. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus in this moment is unashamedly not inclusive. He's unashamedly exclusive. He says simply this, I am the connection between you and my Father. There is no other option out there. Jesus, in a way that's hard for us to hear in a pluralistic society, is unashamedly simply exclusive. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip replies, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. There's still some sense we haven't seen everything that you're supposed to share with us, Jesus. There has to be more. And Jesus begins to pull in this idea that he and the Father are actually one. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, rather the Father living in me is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. At least believe based on everything that you've seen. You've seen the miracles, you've heard the teaching, you've even seen people raised from the dead, even just on that basis. Believe that I am here as a representative of my Father and we, we in fact, we are one. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. How many of you, if you're honest, find that a stretch of faith? You will do the works that I have been doing? It seems to be a truth that Jesus' life was lived out as you and I live out our lives. Didn't get to rely on some kind of special power. Simply he relied on his Father and the Holy Spirit to whom he'll introduce us. He lived a human life allowing his Father to work through him. He, He says that you and I, the same things he did, we're able to do. The things that we read in books like Acts, those things are just as possible today as they were then. That can be hard to hear. That can be hard to hear. I grew up in a Pentecostal environment where we saw all sorts of wonderful things. One of the challenges for me has been simply, I grew up seeing those and being involved in those, and then I moved to America, and they don't seem to happen in the same way. I'm not saying that's an American thing. I'm asking, is that a me thing? There's a challenge there as to why don't we always see them in the way that Jesus suggests we might. He seems pretty categorical that he has work for us to do, just as he had work for them to do. And he says that he has power for them to do it. 
power that's given by this Holy Spirit to character that he will introduce us to. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate, is the word it chooses to use here, to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. This is not the first time this Holy Spirit person has been mentioned. In actual fact, he's been present throughout the text, but it's now more concrete, it's now more specific. Actually, from the very beginning moments, we see the language of spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In almost every ancient language, the word for breath, the word for wind, and the word for spirit, they're the same word. And here we read, yes, it's translated spirit, but it could be translated the breath of God was hovering over the waters. And Jesus even gets involved in this wordplay himself in John chapter three. Now there was a Pharisee, a religious leader, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one could perform the science you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus, I love the way he can just float and change direction. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How, Nicodemus says, can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. It's like he's, he's kind of pushing back. He's like, Jesus, really? The things that you're talking about are impossible. And, and Jesus will say something that reflects on the fact that none of us really understand the way that the world works. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He suggests that just as the wind has a mystery to it, it starts up out of nowhere and it moves things around. So the Spirit is moving. God is at work. Jesus takes this idea of the Holy Spirit and and recognizes the fact that the Holy Spirit is not just a force, but is relational, is relatable, is knowable by people like you and I. Which brings us back to John chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. This word here is like if I translated it literally would be this word paraclete, a Greek word parakletos. And if this relationship is as crucial as Jesus seems to suggest it is for you and I to live any kind of life in Jesus, we probably need to know exactly what he means by that. What, what is a a paraclete. So at its core, the word could simply be translated like this. It's someone who comes alongside you. Someone who comes and stands next to you. But in its history, it's a legal expression. In lots of Greek writing, it is used in legal terms. Now here's the risk with acknowledging that. There's just a chance that when I say it's a legal term, that that actually the word parakletos could be translated as lawyer, what you picture is this. (laughs) 
that's good old Frank Azar, like chasing ambulances down the road. It's like the moment you drive down I-70 on the way back from the mountains. And I notice it never has this sign on the way up into the mountains, but on the way down, there's a big sign that says, did someone crash into you while you were skiing? Call this person, and they will make sure you get money uh, to make sure that, I don't know, that you're fine or something. But, but that's potentially our picture when we say, lawyer, when I moved to America, two of the things that were hard to get used to were pharmaceutical commercials, you know, the ones that end by saying, ask your doctor to prescribe you this, because everywhere else I'd lived, the doctor tells you what you're supposed to take and never the other way around. And then the lawyer commercials of like, let me help you get money from this poor person that was probably trying to live life in a fairly healthy way. If that's what we hear, we're on the wrong track. But the word paraclete actually does have a good core. It is well understood by thinking of a defense attorney. Imagine yourself in a situation where you've been accused of a crime, wrongly accused of a crime, and someone comes and, and, and defends you and stands up for you and, and represents the legal argument, makes sure that you're okay. That actually is a good picture of the, la the language of paraclete. It comes up in 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. Incredibly, this advocate, this defense lawyer, defends you successfully when you are guilty. Defends me successfully when I am guilty. He stands up and says, no, the, the price has been paid. That's one reading of Paraclete, and it seems like Jesus fulfills this role in his good plan for this world, but it also means a couple of other things. Could mean comforter, could mean helper, could mean counselor. In 2 Corinthians, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Same word, paraclete, who comforts us, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Same language, someone who stands alongside. If you have kids, you can picture this really easy. Maybe you can think about your own parents if you don't have kids, but there's sometimes a difference in how a mother and a father cares for their kids. I always understood my role as to be the defender. If they got into this moment where they needed someone who would lay down their life physically for them, that was what I would do. I would stand and I would defend them. And that gives you a picture of Paraclete in 1 John chapter 2. You have a defender, someone who will stand up for you. And then there's this picture of Paraclete that is to come and stand alongside. And that's one of the things I've seen my wife do in these amazing moments in our kids' lives. We took my first son Jude skiing when he was about three years old and he hated it, had a miserable experience, partly because his father dragged him all over this beginner's slope, just trying to make him get down the fact that he was supposed to ski and it just was a matter of just working a little harder to the point that he really just crumpled into the side of the mountain and just, just was unconsolable until his mother came alongside him and grabbed him and held him. And I have this picture somewhere of them sat in the snow together and slowly and gently she's just whispering over him, Mama's got you, Mama's got you, Mama's got you. And then for months afterwards, every time Jude found himself in this time of stress, he would say to himself, Mama's got you, Mama's got you, Mama's got you. There's a paraclete that is like the defense lawyer. And then there's this picture of one who comes alongside who brings comfort. 
And that's why in some versions, maybe the version you have, if you have a paper version of the Bible, it says, and I will pray the Father and he shall, he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. The language of comfort is good. As John starts to move on in his recording of Jesus' teaching, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And what is it that you don't have if you're an orphan? No one to protect you and no one to come alongside you. And Jesus says, I won't leave you like that. I make sure you have both of those things. I make sure you have both of those things. If you are here and your sense is that I am deeply in need of comfort, then there is good news. Because Jesus says, I am the comforter. Or the Holy Spirit is the comforter and he comes alongside and he is with you. And that's a beautiful truth. But there's something else going on in this text that intrigues me. Because I would suggest in this room there's a whole bunch of people that would say, I'm afflicted and I am deeply in need of comfort. And it might be that there's a whole bunch of us that fit into the category that I find myself often. And that God has been speaking and wrestling with me on this week. In John chapter 13, Jesus not only gives bad news, I would suggest in John chapter 13, he creates discomfort. He creates discomfort. Because think about this first group of his followers. They've gathered with Jesus. They have found a rabbi who will take them under his instruction. In the first century, that was the highest call for a young Jewish man. Everyone would get education up to around the age of 12, and then at 12, the least intelligent would be told, go and find a trade. And then at 16, 17, the same thing would happen again. And if you made it all the way to 30, you got to become a rabbi yourself. You got to start calling your own followers. And in the first century in the Jewish world, that was a great thing to be. That was an important role. And in amongst Jesus' followers, what we find is a group of people that seem at some point, someone has come to them and said, no, this isn't for you. Go back to your father, learn his trade. Go to your uncle, learn his trade. Go to the Romans and be a tax collector, but, but you're not going to make it here. And then to their absolute surprise, these young men have been called by this new rabbi, this, this rabbi who is talked about everywhere, who is doing these incredible things. But it doesn't seem like they ever really, until his death and resurrection, catch on with ju on to just how unusual Jesus is and just how unusual what he's doing is. It seems like for them, there's a couple of possible dreams in this moment. One is that Jesus will be a great rabbi and they will learn from him and they will get to 30 and then they will go and be rabbis themselves. A great thing to be in the first century. Another possibility is Jesus will start a new kingdom. He'll get rid of the Romans and he'll free Israel and they'll have their kingdom there and they'll be important parts of Jesus' kingdom. Difficult dreams perhaps to attain, but, but not impossible. No different than dreaming you might become president or something today. There's a concrete world that they can imagine becoming real and they get to be a part of it. And because they follow Jesus, they're invited into all sorts of conversations they would never have been invited into before. Pharisees come to them and say, tell us about why your teacher does this. Tell us more about Jesus and who he is. And, and suddenly people are interested in them. 
And if it's hard for you to see the disciples as that self-involved or that interested in how this might benefit them, what I would suggest is that the text tells us that that's what they were like all the time. In Luke chapter two, in the midst of Jesus talking about his coming death and resurrection, in the midst of him talking about the very thing we're going to do at the end of this service, we read this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was, to be consi- was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. There's this picture of the disciples that that seems to suggest they were very excited about just what their role in this earthly kingdom would look like, just how they could be more important than those around them, how much life might change, how, how much they might attain to these big dreams that were beyond them before now. And in John chapter 13, Jesus creates discomfort because he said, that's not how this is working. I will die, yes, and I will be raised, yes, and then I'm leaving you to do the work. And suddenly they're met with this world where Jesus is no longer present in a physical sense. All of their dreams that they could have attained with Jesus who never fails there alongside them, well, now this Jesus will be gone. And what does life look like then? Jesus in John chapter 13 creates discomfort. And in John chapter 14, Jesus promises comfort. He creates an environment for those first disciples where they are desperately aware of their need for someone to come alongside them. Desperately in need need of someone to comfort them. Desperately aware of their own sense of inadequacy. And this is what I've been wrestling with all week. What is the relationship between comfort and comfortable? What is the relationship between those two things? When I think about comfortable, the thing that comes to mind is this. It's the aquarium in Finding Nemo. If you've never seen the movie, it's the story about a fish called Nemo that is trying to be found or someone's trying to find him and, and I'm not ruining the end when I just simply say they do find him. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called Finding Nemo, it would be called f- Trying to Find Nemo or something like that. I don't know. That'd be some other name for it. Still looking for Nemo somewhere desperately. He, his dad travels across the ocean to, to rescue him. His dad has always been trying to keep him safe to make sure life is fine. And so he goes looking for him completely unaware of the fact that although they're separate, Nemo's in the safest place he could ever be. He's in an aquarium where life is controlled, where life continues, maybe not real life, but some kind of form of life. Nemo has the potential to live there very comfortably indeed, probably much longer than he would live in the ocean. And maybe you've seen that, maybe you've seen an animal out of its natural environment, safe, But you look at it and you say, is that really what life is supposed to look like? It's comfortable, sure, but is it real life? 
Uh, you see it with lions in the zoo, they pace up and down and they act in ways that they wouldn't act in the wild and you begin to look at it and you see something like born in captivity and you say, is that a real lion? You might not use those exact words, but you wonder how similar it is to the lions you see in the wild. I found this wonderful picture of a zoo in uh, China. This is the picture of the animal that's inside the cage, purportedly. This is a picture of the actual cage. That's not a lion, just in case you're unaware. But, but it's the same feeling, right? It's like, is the lion that you think you see, is it a real lion? And the aquarium that Nemo finds himself in is, is comfortable, sure. It's safe, sure. But it's only good if you don't think that this is where you're supposed to live. If you don't think there's an ocean out there that is real life. And I sometimes wonder if our desire to be comfortable actually gets in the way of real life. I came across this just as I was prepping and praying about this sermon. It's the brochure I was given for Highlands Ranch Community Association. Live life the way it was intended. And I found myself thinking, is this really how life was intended? And if you live in Littleton, you're not any better. Like, this isn't a superiority thing. You don't get any smugness from, like, Littleton's so much more like real life. It's not that Highlands Ranch is bad. I'm not even saying that you should leave it. But there are aspects to how we do life that make me wonder, is that how it's supposed to be? And the comfort that it brings or the comfortable situation that it provides, is it sometimes not a little bit like an aquarium? where everything's controlled and everything's safe. And the reason that might be a problem is this. Do the comfortable really ever need a comforter? Do the comfortable ever really need a comforter? And is it possible that I allow life to exist at such a level of safety that actually my need for God need for this Holy Spirit who comes and stand al stands alongside isn't particularly evident at all. Oh sure, there'll be moments, and if you are the same as me, there'll be moments for you too. There'll be a surprise sickness, a surprise loss of a job. There'll be something that suddenly creates a moment where you suddenly say, oh my goodness, I desperately need God after all. But, but in everyday life, it's possible that everything is controlled and climatized like an aquarium to the point that you say, no, I'm, I'm good, I'm okay. This is fine, I got this. Do the comfortable really need a comforter? I would suggest the comfortable rarely need a comforter. Pope Francis said this, to put it simply, the Holy Spirit bothers us because he moves us, he makes us walk, he pushes the church to go forward. We want the Holy Spirit to doze off, we want to domesticate the Holy Spirit and that's no good because he is God, he is that wind which comes and goes, and you don't know where. He is the power of God, he is the one who gives us consolation and strength to move forward, but to move forward. And this bothers us. It's so much nicer to be comfortable. It's so much nicer to be comfortable. And so as I began to wrestle with this, something began to stir and just some questions about, well, what does that mean? Like, does that mean I leave Highlands Ranch? No, not necessarily. And I love lots about Highlands Ranch. Uh, but it seems like there's things that I might do that, that push me into discomfort. 
One of them is to pray dangerous prayers like God creating me the right amount of discomfort. It's the prayer that might resemble what it is for a bird to stir up the, the nest so that the baby birds are, are just discomfort, uncomfortable enough that they, they end up jumping off the edge and they end up flying in some particular way. But I just wonder if there's other practices that we might dream of together that remind us that we're supposed to be just a little bit uncomfortable. And a comfortable aquarium life is not the ocean that God has called us to. In the sixth book of C.S. Lewis' Narnia series, and if you never got past the line, the witch and the wardrobe, that's fine. I'm going to help you with that for a moment. We're introduced to this character called Puddleglum, this strange character that accompanies two of the children on their adventures. And in the penultimate scene, they find themselves in an underground world with this witch who has caught them in a room and is, she's put something in the fire that has this intoxicating smell to it that's slowly sending them to sleep. And she's playing this music that just has those just notes of sleepiness to it and she's slowly reciting things to them that are slowly just sending them into this world of just, everything's okay. She starts to tell them that the world that they believe in that, that is up above her world, the world with a sun is simply a reflection of the lamp that is the only real thing. That the sky that they believe they have seen, it doesn't really exist. That Aslan, the great lion, is just, well, just a big cat. And none of it really matters and none of it's really real because the only real world is her world, is the aquarium world that says there's nothing beyond this. And that world is safe and secure and they, they can be happy there. And slowly as the scent invades the room and the, the music continues to play and the voice continues to speak, they, they slowly get to this point of saying, yeah, you're right. There's no world but this world. This is all there is. And it's comfortable and it's safe. Just stay here. Everything will be fine. And then Puddleglum has this moment where he has this, for whatever reason, just this sudden moment of clarity and he knows in that moment of clarity he has to act and so he goes over to the fire and he takes his bare foot and he stamps on the fire causing this moment of intense pain and this terrible smell for everybody else which just awakens them to their predicament, awakens them to this moment that, that they can't let go of. And so as I thought about that, my question became, in what ways can I throw my foot into the fire so I don't forget that I don't go back to just, it's the aquarium, and it's fine, and I can live here happily for a long time. What are those practices that allow me to remember? What are those practices that allow me to live an alternate story to the one that suggests that Highlands Ranch is life the way it's supposed to be lived, simply because it's safe, secure, comfortable, and convenient. Again, it's not that it's bad. It's simply that it might allow me to live a life that God never dreamed of for me. Ivan Illich said this, if you want to change society, he was asked, should we rebel or should we just kind of quietly in an undercurrent try and change the world? That way he said, no, no, somewhere if you want to change society, you must tell an alternate story. And what we see in this table that we come to today is an alternate story. Because the world story says this, death is the worst thing and to be avoided at all costs. 
And Jesus' story embraces death because it brings life. The world's story says riches at any cost. The Jesus story says, I surrender riches in order to give to others. In so many ways, Jesus presents a counter-cultural world that culminates at this table. This is a different table, an upside-down kingdom table that says, no, life as you've imagined it may not be life as it's meant to live at all. And I don't feel like what I am called to give you today is concrete practices of how you get to respond to this. What I do feel called to say is this, that this table is special because it can do both of these things at the same time. For those of you that today would say, I feel deeply afflicted. You have no idea how hard my life is, how painful it is right now, and how desperately I need someone to come alongside and be that comforter. And this table can comfort the afflicted. And for those of you that might say, the aquarium might have become just a touch too comfortable, and I want to dream up ways that I can throw my foot into the fire, this table can afflict the comfortable. It does both of these things, and it does them really well. So in a moment, Aaron's going to lead us, and I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to say, come with all of your affliction and bring it to this table, to the God of all comfort, to the one who sent his spirit and says, he came for that reason. And for those of you that would say, there's so much comfort, just not sure, doesn't feel right, will come and bring that comfort to the one who knows how to stir up the nest, who knows how to ruffle feathers, who knows how to recreate dreams, who knows how easy it is to live a life that just says everything's fine. If you've started to feel like life is simply lived to help your kids get to live the same life years down the road, then maybe you find yourself in an aquarium and just a little too comfortable. If life has just been about the amassing of wealth, maybe it's just a little too comfortable. If life has become just about living to a long old age, then maybe it's a little too comfortable. Because Jesus said you have work to do and you have power to do it. And so for this table, for those of us that are afflicted, there is comfort. And those that are, comfort that are comfortable, there might be affliction. Would you stand with me, friends? Jesus, you see us. Just as you saw your first disciples and you saw those moments where in the midst of you pouring out your heart and revealing your plan for the world, you saw them bicker about who would be best and who would be greatest. And you see our hearts just like theirs, human, so prone to getting lost, so prone to addiction, so prone to being comfortable, so prone to wounding, to holding heavy burdens that we cannot hold by ourselves. And so God, as we come to this table that you prepared for us, would you comfort the afflicted? And if we're brave enough, 
Would you afflict the comfortable? If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.